My name is Al Angeline Jackson. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> We've been married 30 years. It, it feels like we have become one. Yeah. Although we still don't. Sometimes when, you know, people have been married for a long time, they start to look alike, but that no, will probably no, never I don't think so. <laughs> that will never happen for Al and I. But we sure sound alike a lot of times, you know, our thinking is kind of melded into one through the years. I've been with Moms for America for about 14 years. I um have been involved in cottage meetings, study groups of women coming together to learn this material so they can then go home and teach their children and grandchildren and be a force for good in their communities. Uh, so I've, I've been involved in the formation of these cottage meetings or study groups all around the nation for probably over a decade, 12, 13 years now. I'm primarily uh, just a, a teacher and uh, I still love to advocate for the study groups because I've seen how transformational it is when um, five, 10 you know, families or mothers in a community will gather once a week, once a month. It can be a study group, can be mothers and fathers, grandmas and grandpas, and how transformative that is as an individual. It changed certainly Al and I's marriage when I began to meet together in my uh, study group in Hood River, Oregon, about 15 years ago, and, it, and how it changed the way we teach our children and the impact that it's had on our children is quite amazing. So we lived in Hood River, Oregon about 15 years ago. We mamas were concerned about what our children were being taught in the school systems. One of the mothers said she saw a program on Glenn Beck and he held up this 5,000 year leak book. And he said, mothers, you need to gather together and learn these principles and go home and teach them to your children. So that's exactly, let's start our PowerPoint. That's exactly what I did as we mothers would meet once a month for about an hour and a half we'd go home and teach it over the breakfast table or at the dinner hour. I, um, for years, we had had a family devotional in the morning with our children. When they were little, Al would go off to work. Now, my oldest, our oldest is 28, and that other little babe there is a big 6'4 athlete. It's been in the NBA for six years. But my, you know, uh, when you start young, teaching them these little stories of America and to revere, you know, these heroes from our past. And then let's see the next slide. When I began to attend the cottage meeting, when our oldest was about 13, we would in the morning, our devotionals would just entail, you know, studying the Bible. We maybe uh, memorize a little scripture or poems, sing a gospel song, and then we pray together. But as I began to learn these principles and stories of America, I began to take a few minutes and weave the constitution into our morning devotional. And then let's see that next slide, hun. And then now all the kids know when they come back four out of, we have five children. We live in the Washington DC area. We're just about 20 minutes from the um, white house in Washington DC. But when the kids come home now, uh, they know that we, we have this devotional. We study the word of God. We talk about current events. We talk about constitutional principles. And when the children were young, oftentimes Al had left for work and wasn't able to get in that uh, initial early teaching, but he made it a priority uh, to just rearrange his meetings and his work. And so uh, you mm -hmm. have led us in family devotional. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so now we just have, let's see the next slide, one child. And she's almost 16. This was taken just this morning. And we study the word. And then we um, we go through one of the principles. So she's on principle number five. 
And she says the principle, then we talk it through. She reads some little quotes from that chapter. And so we spend the whole week on a principle and through the school year, we will go through all 28 principles. And, and then you take that principle and apply it to the newspaper because yeah. you go, we get the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post and you go through the headlines. Yeah, yeah. And we read the headlines and we see is what's going on in the world or in our country. Does that jive with the principles of liberty that we had just you know, studied a few minutes earlier? So it gives them a practical application of the principles as to real, real world events. And so you teach your children and your grandchildren these things. And I promise you the fruits initially, believe me, the kids felt when they were teenagers, they were falling asleep in the devotional. I thought they probably weren't even getting anything. But my Frankie here, Frank has been in the NBA for six years, played for the New Orleans Pelicans and the Detroit Pistons. And then just about three months ago, transferred over to Europe in the Euro League. He lives in France now. But he was, for six years, the only kid when the national anthem was played with his hand over his heart. And he will say, I know, Mom, you thought I was sleeping through the family devotional, but I wasn't. And I know he wasn't because he was the only one with his hand over his heart because he had been taught, you know, the symbolism and, and what went behind, you know, the national anthem and that flag. Our oldest daughter right now, this was just taken, she sent this picture about three days ago. She has a job that takes her to Africa and she oversees the marketing for a company that helps capture genealogy and family history and to digitize so people can understand when they, when, when you know where you come from, you're able to proceed better in life when you know your rootings and your anchoring. And so she's doing some market research over there. And so, you know, I, you will hear us talk a lot about our kids because they've been our guinea pigs as we taught them these concepts and they live in a world where they could use their race as, as a badge of uh, victimhood you know, as so many narratives are being played out now. And, but when you teach them these concepts of, you know, self-reliance and working hard and knowing that this is a land of blessing and opportunity, they are able to kind of navigate those minefields that they will encounter in the school systems and the universities and so forth. Okay, so hopefully everyone has their books. They ha you have your 5,000 year leap book. And you have, I would really recommend if you can order these little bookmarks. Can you see this? Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, maybe if you could just do it full screen for a moment. Yeah, that'd be great. If you could, uh, these little bookmarks, I'm not sure if you can see them, but they have all 28 principles in the National Center for Constitutional Studies. I think it's like $5. You get a hundred of them. Put them in every one of your books. Uh, we have actually memorized these 28 principles and they will rise up and bless you in your hour of need and they will change the tone of any conversation. If you can share a principle, bring principle into a conversation, you will always speak with greater strength and authority. And so Thomas Jefferson was a great one to memorize when he would go out on his daily walks. I would encourage you to begin to memorize these 28 principles just keep them in your car and your purse. And when you have a moment, pull them out and, and review them. Repetition is how you memorize. And then reviewing them a couple times a week is how you retain the principle. And so I really recommend getting the student edition of the 5,000 year leap because then you can write in it and it will be kind of your script. I, I We would pull uh, these books on our lap during morning devotional, I would at least. And I would read in, to them out of, you, you know, my student edition books. And it, it was a great uh, 
way to teach your children. So anyways, last week we talked about uh, how under the constitution, we literally took a 5,000 year leap from the ox and the plow and the spinning wheel to now in under 200 years, putting a man on the moon. I mean, this is what you do when you teach these principles of liberty and freedom for everyone, when you're, everyone is allowed to have property and to own their labor, it, it unleashes innovation and creativity and the human imagination when you can experiment on the idea of freedom and liberty. And we talked about last week, this monumental task that the founders had in structuring the government in the balance center where power came from the voice of the people, not kingly government or tyrannical government that most people had lived under throughout history, but this representative government that came from the voice of the people. And representative government has its roots in people's law, Al taught us last week, and people's law can be found in um, uh, the books of Genesis and Deuteronomy and Numbers. Uh, Moses established really the first republic, didn't he? Yeah. Exodus chapter 18. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Where the, the problems closest to the people were solved at the local level because they best knew how to handle you know the problem so he put captains over 10 families and captains over captains over 50 and over 100 and only the big problems were handled up at the top mm -hmm. they understood strong local self-government was the keystone to preserving your freedom of, of determining how you were to live and so and then you see you see people's law also uh, about 1800 years later through the uh, Anglo-Saxons. And many people believe that the Anglo-Saxons were remnants of the lost tribes that were uh, the scattered tribes of Israel, which is interesting to study. Or certainly our founding fathers made that connection. And so these 28 principles, these 28 ideas that our founding fathers used to really establish this first free people in modern times is what we're going to jump in tonight. We're going to study principles number one and number two. So our first principle today is this evening, the only reliable basis for sound government, that's strong government, stable government, and just human relations, that's honorable uh, relationships with each other and fair and right and upright relationships the most reliable basis for good government and good relationships with mankind is based on natural law. Now, you might ask yourself, natural law, what's that? Well, we're going to talk about that tonight. It's God's law. You know, most modern Americans have never really studied natural law, and it, we might even be mystified why there's a, a constant reference to natural law by our founding fathers. Now, an English uh, thinker that uh, and writer in England in the early 1700s confirmed this, the wisdom that the founders understood, stating that the only reliable basis for a stable society and a system of justice is one that is based on natural law. So one of the best places to look to understand what natural law is, and, and also was one of our founding fathers' favorite authors, is Cicero. Have you heard of Cicero? He was an ancient... Roman political writer, thinker, uh, a lawyer. He was born in 106 BC, all right? 
And he was a leading lawyer at his time. He actually rose to the highest office in Rome, in the Roman consul. And um, he showed considerable courage in his time when Rome was drifting towards a dictatorship. And he uh, uh, fought against that. And he would uh, go on to be murdered because of some of his beliefs. But he studied intensely all forms of political systems. And he wrote a landmark book before the birth of Christ that is still enduring and was known and read by our founding fathers entitled The Republic and the Laws. And in this book, he projected, he foresaw the grandeur and promise of a future society based on natural law is what he called it. And our founding fathers, the thing that made our founding fathers and our early nation so strong was their shared beliefs. They were reading out of the same books, primarily the Bible, but they were studying these ancient thinkers. And they saw in Cicero's writings the necessary ingredients for their model society that they hoped to build. Now, what are the fundamental principles of Cicero's teachings? It was to build a society based on natural law. And really, natural law was nothing more than recognizing that there are rules of right conduct according to the laws of the supreme creator of the universe. Now, even back in the BC time, <laughs> when mm -hmm. there were, you know, often civilizations that were pagan and, uh, you know, idolatry was their religion, penetrating minds like Cicero reasoned their way to the idea that there had to be a brilliant intelligence of a supreme designer, that this was not just some random big bang uh, theory or some kind of fish to a monkey yeah, to so, a human. So whenever there's a design, there's a designer. Yes. Right. And that's what he understood. We are a design, therefore there must be a designer. And so his compelling honesty led him to conclude in the reality of a creator and that this supreme creator had had to have established an order of things. And he called this creator's order of things natural law, the designer's order of things, kind of like whoever makes up you know, the rules of the game, that's, you know, how, how the game is played best. You, you look to the designer, the one who crafted the design or the game or whatever analogy you want to use. And so he came up with that reasoning, common sense conclusion. And in fact, our founding fathers agreed with him. And Thomas Jefferson, in the very first paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, called it the laws of nature and nature's God. All right, so we see two references right there to God in the very first paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, coming from a man that people will say wasn't even religious or didn't believe in God or that kind of thing. He embedded references to God five times in the Declaration of Independence. Okay, I'll take it away yeah. to explain natural law. All right. Do you want to talk about the tip net? You did that. One. Yes. Very good. All right. Okay, good. <laughs> You must applaud. All right, let's talk. Natural law is eternal and universal. So God is the father of all of us. Therefore, he is no respecter of persons. So that means that he treats us all equally. And so 
that means that we behave according to the dictates of Heavenly Father who created us all. And so he treats us all equally, loves us all equally, even those who are acting like knuckleheads. Therefore, his law applies across the board. His law applies across the board. So he is the God over all of us. He is the author of this law. He is the enforcing judge. And so laws are created based on laws of nature or nature's God. So it, it's universal in its application. There's a code of right reason from the creator. That's what separates us from other animals because we can reason. It cannot be altered. It cannot be repealed. And it cannot be abandoned by legislators or the people themselves, even though they pretend to do so. And there's a lot of pretending today that's going on. So the first great commandment we all know, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. So when you talk about the foundation of self-government, it has to do with morality. And morality starts with this first great commandment, loving God. And, and Julene will talk about the second great commandment. And when God's law is right reason, and when it's perfectly understood, it's called wisdom. And then you've got that term justice, where we're treated equally under the, under the law. And it's interesting when we look at things going on today, it doesn't seem quite to work that way, that the laws are different for some individuals and different for sometimes regular regular Americans. We seem to see the elite get away with, with things that an average person would not get away with. And, and that's problematic. And so that is clearly contrary to how the, the Lord wanted us all to be treated on an equal basis. And when people are united together in this covenant or this compact, they become a true commonwealth. Okay, Jolene, the second great commandment. Okay, so it's interesting that Cicero, remember, these are ideas and teachings from Cicero. He's ex trying to explain this natural law of the supreme being or its creator and his order of things. He wasn't a Christian, he wasn't uh, uh, or a Jew, but he was able to discover the power and fundamental significance of obedient, not obedience, not only to this first commandment, but also to the second one, even before it was known as the first and second commandment, right? That ultimately, you know, to love God and to love your neighbor. He raised the point in connection with this discussion of justice. He points out that justice is impossible except under the principle of God's just law. For, and, and quote, he says, for these virtues originate in our natural inclination to love our fellow men, and this is the foundation of justice. So basically he's saying is, look, we want to treat others as we want mm -hmm. to be treated, kind of akin to the golden rule, right? So to Cicero, the glue which holds a body of human beings together in this commonwealth of a just society is love, love of the supreme creator and love of his laws of justice. And, and, and as you love him and you love his laws, you love the fellow men, which pro pro provide this desire to promote true justice among mankind. So you don't necessarily want to do wrong to others because you don't want wrong done to you. You revere and respect this concept of justice. So he knows that if, if you 
are obedient and pay homage and allegiance and love to the supreme creator, that you will want to keep his laws. And part of his law, we know ultimately, is to love one another. And so it's really quite amazing he was able to discern that in 106 BC. He, he lived for 63 years, died at, what, 43 BC. Mm -hmm. And he, he taught that all mankind can be taught God's law or this virtue through education. He wrote that this there is a significant proof that there is no difference in the kind between man and woman. In fact, there is no human being of any race who, if he finds a guide, cannot attain to virtue. This is what Cicero came to. And so it's interesting what he might have thought this guide would be for us to learn the law and then to desire to be just and virtuous and good and to adhere to this right conduct. I think today, we, you know, if I were to say what would be a guide in, in teaching God's law and virtue, it would be the, the word of God, right? Mm -hmm. Holy divine writ that so clearly outlines the, his laws or um, religion. And, and that's one of that's principle number four that we're going to talk about, that our founders knew without religion, this government of free people could not be maintained because they would not maintain their knowledge of God's law and their virtue. Another guide would probably be, you know, prayer or the Holy Spirit or an inspired mother and father mm -hmm. teaching, you know, being these guides. It is interesting that Cicero in his writings, interesting enough, warned us, you know, 2000 years ago that any legislation in violation of God's natural law, his his order of the universe is will be a scourge to humanity. Mm -hmm. And he quotes here, and I guess this, these quotes came from his book, Republic and the Law, yeah. where he says, for if ignorant and unskilled men have prescribed deadly poisons instead of healing drugs, these cannot possibly be called physicians or prescriptions. Neither in a nation, now this is Cicero talking in the BC period, neither in a nation can a statute of any sort be called a law, even though the nation, in spite of being a ruinous regulation, has accepted it. So do you get what he's saying here? That laws that don't follow God's law or natural law is really no law at all all right because it's contrary to the order of the supreme being the creator and so just think of you know laws in our time of abortion or same-sex marriage or the transgender laws or even when they supreme court made the law to pull prayer out of school i mean are these really true laws uh you know under natural law okay so i was going to talk about Yes, let's talk about, give some examples of how all laws should be measured against God's law. So the first one, bail reform laws. So the, the Lord set up a system in the first five books of Moses that was in, designed to protect those who were doing good and to punish those who were doing wicked. Today, we seem to have laws on the books that protect the criminal more than they do the victim. And so we, we see that today. Compulsory education is another one that violates God's 
gift to us of agency to choose for ourselves. And, and fortunately, we're seeing a lot of families who are starting to homeschool their kids because really the best form of education is really self-study. I mean, you look at Washington, you look at Frederick Douglass, Benjamin Franklin, Abraham Lincoln, they were all self-taught. And in order to, and, and we, we know this as an example for ourselves, when we are voracious seekers of knowledge, that's how we become educated. That's how we learn. And today, our kids are forced to go to school to sit in uh, these concrete classrooms for six hours out of the day, and they move from class to class at, at the sign of a bell. And so I don't think that the founders designed our education system to be that day, but it, it has come, become that way. And the reason that the elites give us is because it's for the public good. They always use us as an excuse to impose upon us and take away our agency. It's always good for the, for the public good. You look at regulations that inhibit the Second Amendment, the God-given right for us to protect and defend ourselves. Julene touched on marriage, which was a big one. One of the biggest mistakes, in my opinion, that we made with regard to marriage, first of all, was a religious ceremony. I'm still doing research on how government got involved in marriage, where you've got to go get a license, you're legally and lawfully wedded, but marriage was a religious ceremony, and somehow government got involved in it. And when government got involved in it, we felt that when marriage became under attack, that we needed to define marriage between a man and a woman. And what happens when you define something in code? Then it becomes subject to the courts. And, and then the power to interpret, which the courts have, is the power to destroy. And so as soon as we define what the Lord had already defined, the Lord has defined marriage between a man and a woman. It's in the scriptures. He's already defined that. And this goes back to what Julene talked about. If the Lord's already defined it, there's no need for us to write legislation to further define it. And But when you do, it opens the door for the judges and the courts to come in and change that. That's why I'm so fearful of this whole gender definitions that we're putting in the code where we're defining a woman and a man. God's already done that. There's no need for us to do that. And I'm fearful that we're going down the same path with gender identity as we did with marriage. So let's stay tuned for that. Democracy first, a republic. Republic is the highest form of government devised by man, but it also requires the greater amount of care and maintenance. And the reason that is, is because a republic is based on the rule of law. And when the Lord has defined something, there's no need for government to also define it. A democracy is based on majority rule. It's subject to feelings. So, for example, in a republic, murder will always be against the law. But if we morph into a democracy and the majority of the people, then this is kind of a a far out example, but if the people decide over 50% that they have feelings and that murder is not punishable by crime, they can change that. That's why when I hear the word democracy, I just cringe. No, we, we're not, we're not based on emotion and feelings. It's, it's a republic and which is based on facts, God's facts and facts do not care about your feelings. So principles of right and wrong were not based on this rapidly fluctuating feelings and emotions of the people, but rather on principles that do not change. Principles that resonate 
and transcend race, principles that transcend political party. These are principles that do not change. So as we're talking today, I hope we can, we're thinking also, man, we are, we are so far afield of what the founders gave us. We've got a lot of work to get back to it. And, you know, people will, if you do a survey, they'll, they'll say that maybe racism is the, is the main issue of the day, or why are we having the problems that we're having? And I would submit the country is in a moral and spiritual free fall. And, and we have to change that trajectory. Okay, so democracy versus republic. This is John Adams who talks about it. Democracy will soon degenerate into an anarchy where every man gets to do whatever they want to do in their own eyes and don't respect people's property or reputation. We've seen that today. Where liberty will be secure and every one of these will soon mold itself into a system of subordination of all the moral virtues and intellectual abilities, all the powers of the wealth, beauty, wit, and science will be in the hands of one or very few. Some of these statements that the founders made were almost prophetic. A moral and virtuous society is what the founders tried to build us upon. And they wanted to lift mankind from the common depravity and chicanery of past civilizations because they were students of history. And they knew that in order for a, a society to thrive and have self-government thrive, the people had to be moral and virtuous. That's why they built their system based on natural law or God's law. So here are some examples of natural law. I'm just going to touch on a couple of them. Uh, limited, limited government is based on natural law, where power is not centralized in the hands of one or a few. The people are in charge. The people are, if you're, if you're engaged in self-government, then you should be making decisions about your health care. You should be making decisions about educating your kids. You should be making decisions at the local level about how to take care of the poor and needy. That should not be made by some bureaucrat in Washington, D.C. that set the rules for how we take care of the poor and needy. You can do it better at the local level. When I was in the state Senate, we'd come up with these ideas and suggestions, and they'd say, Senator Jackson, that's a great suggestion. We love that. But because we take money from the federal government, we have to adhere to their rules. And so this is how we have to do welfare. And, and what welfare has done is encourage the mother of an, uh, an unwed mother who's happened to be pregnant to marry the government as opposed to the father. Separation of powers. We talked about this last week. Thomas Jefferson said, let there be no, let there be said not to have confidence in men, but bind them down from mischief with the chains of the constitution, separating powers among many. So it's not concentrated. Another example of natural law is the right to bear arms to protect ourselves, checks and balances, self-preservation. All these things are examples of natural law. Okay, Jelaine. Okay, so I think a, I think a really good argument to defend uh, natural law is just based on our first founding document that declared our independence. There's five references to God and natural law and, uh, and God in that and the first one is the law of nature and then nature's god it's the first paragraph and then endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights those inalienable rights we know are, are god-given rights they are the thou shalt shalt in holy writ 
that natural law is contained in. They, they are the rights that enable us to live the Ten Commandments, to live God's yes. law. Those when Deline talks about thou shalt, and then there's their unalienable wrongs that say thou shalt not. Okay, yeah. And then uh, in the last paragraph of the Declaration, there's two references to appealing to the supreme judge of the world, okay, this idea of the supreme being, this creator, and there is an order to his creations, and then having a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. From Thomas Jefferson, several years ago, Al and I were in Colonial Williamsburg, and they have these reenactors of George Washington, Martha Washington, and Thomas Jefferson, and, you know, uh, James Madison, and we went to a lecture in a... <laughs> when they see us coming, they cringe, because, you know, we we're going to call them out. <laughs> yeah, we lived in Colonial Williamsburg, Virginia, for, what, a year or two? A year. And we loved to go to their lectures, because those, those reenactors were really good. They were really well studied on the Founding Fathers and our history. So we went to one with Thomas Jefferson, and we we're sitting in the auditorium of several hundred people at that beautiful museum there in Colonial Williamsburg. Please put that place on it your bucket it list. Awesome it's, a, it's a wonderful place to go. And he opened it up to questions. And I had just been studying it. I actually memorized uh, parts of the Declaration of Independence and all the references to God. And so I, I asked him the question that I know many people don't think you're a godly man. I, I want to know where you stand on this because in a document that uh, you've written, you reference God five times. And remember, he hemmed and he hawed and he did not want to answer that question. In fact, he almost said it's none of my business that yeah, that was a very. I, I think he did, but he didn't. I mean, he didn't. I think deep down he wanted to, but he knew he couldn't because of the secular nature of how they run things. But go maybe. Ahead. So then I said, so I quoted every single one of these phrases and I said, really, I'm, I'm just curious why you did that then if, you know, this is really how you feel. And then, thank goodness. And and then at this point, like, there, yeah, was, there was some dude that people said, just that, answer the question. Yes, he said, just answer her question. And so then he dug deep and he bore the most beautiful testimony of his belief of God in God's hand in the establishment of this land. And he would not have done that to to two or 300 people if I hadn't have known, you know, these little phrases and it forced him to, it, it was, it was powerful. And that is some of the blessings of understanding these ideas and these principles that have been set forth. You can be such a force for good when you understand these things. So you can see in that picture, there are all those papers that were there. So it took Jefferson 17 days to write the Declaration of Independence. The first day was basically he just copied all the grievances. That's the, the majority of the declaration is all the grievances against the king. That was easy. He did that in a day. He spent 16 days going over to, just to write the first two paragraphs based on these principles. These ancient principles that he gleaned from Genesis and Exodus and Deuteronomy. And um, he said that he felt these principles would be eternal eternal principles, Thomas Jefferson said, and eternal meaning they would go on into some sort of millennial reign. And mm -hmm. so I think he understood the magnitude of which he, what he was doing, and he would have headaches, 
because I guess the stress of the intensity of this at night in um, the little rented room that he rented in Philadelphia, they, people would hear him playing his violin to kind of just relieve some of the, the intensity of, of spending 17 days gleaning these ancient principles that he felt would be eternal principles. Okay, so we're into our second principle that says our founders understood that this free people could not survive under a Republican constitution, a Republican constitution, meaning a, a self-governed uh, uh, people, a self-governed constitution, unless uh, they remain virtuous and morally strong, that we could, they could not survive under this kind of government, this type of constitution, unless they remain morally courageous unless they make their actions consistent with what they say, that they're not only going to say they believe in natural law, they're going to live natural law. Now, I think we've forgotten Americans, the, the heated and violent debates really that took place from 1775 to 1776 over the issue of morality, yeah. meaning were we, were we righteous enough, were we virtuous enough to be able to maintain this kind of government? that was, you know, being proposed and being fact talked even, about. That they even entertain that question is pretty awesome. Right. That are we even virtuous and moral enough? Because, you know, at the time there was slavery. There was a lot of slavery in the South. The North was slowly emancipating their slaves, but there was slavery. And they all came to the conclusion, even during the Constitutional Convention, and we'll talk about this, that they knew it was wrong. And that, and that how could we seek for freedom when we have uh, our brothers and sisters in bondage. Mm -hmm. And all 55 agreed to that. And so Article 1, Section 9, they gave themselves 20 years to, to move out of slavery and, and, and into something else that's more capitalistic. But So, you know, here we go. Benjamin Franklin said, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. And as nations become more corrupt and vicious, they have more need of masters. You know, they, they want to uh, look to God or look, look to government as their God. More laws. Yeah, and, and they want to look to government for their solutions and for their deliverance. And uh, they were worried about this. And, and we certainly saw this during COVID, how people were so willing to put their liberties and freedoms on the table and be told, you know, the government to tell them what was safe and when they could come out and what they could consume and that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, when once you stop revering God and the word of God and prayer and religion and those kind of things that keep you connected to the heavens, then you are more reliant on, uh, you know, a, a horizontal master, you know. And so George Washington would say, too, as he praised this American Constitution, he called it the palladium of human rights. But he pointed out that it could survive only so long as there remained uh, any virtue in the body of the people. So, um, so anyways, how, how do we maintain this? What, what is public virtue? So we think of morality is uh, identified with the 10 commandments or obedient to, you, you know, the divine creator and his mandate for right conduct. But the early Americans identified public virtue really uh, akin to what Cicero saw, the golden rule. And um, and in a republic, they were they consider public virtue submerging their personal wants for the greater good of the whole. 
Now, there's a difference between that kind of public virtue, stewardship, understanding where your rights come from and where your blessings come from. And because you are blessed, you want to naturally give back and help and add to the betterment of your community versus force. Mm -hmm. You know, it's force is like Satan's cheap counterfeit to stewardship. You know, we're going to take your money and we're going to help certain amounts of people and you know you're gonna you know you're not gonna have anything to because we're doing it for the good mm -hmm. so there's a you need to understand there's a difference there so you need to know that there still remain this kind of haunting feeling that maybe we weren't good enough to really make this kind of government work and even some of our early founding fathers were doubters about this but their doubts would gradually be diminished as their indignation was aroused by the treatment and brutal policies of the British crown. And they were moved by the powerful examples and expressions of faith and confidence that came from uh, admired men of virtue, John Adams and George Washington and, and uh, those kind of men. And so by the spring of 1776, there was enough competent voices heard throughout the colonies affirming that, okay, yes, we think there is sufficient public virtue in this people to make this uh, Republican principles, these principles work successfully, which teaches me that we need to continue to be a voice of optimism, even when mm -hmm. things look bad, instead of, you know, being a doom and gloom doubter, mm -hmm. you know, be happy warriors and, and have confidence that in Second Chronicles, when God says he can heal this land, if we enough of us will turn to him and seek his face and repent, he will heal our land. That's right. And that's how and we, when you say happy warriors, that means we treat even the opposition as God would treat them. And so everybody's allowed to have a Saul on the road to Damascus, Paul experience. Yeah. We yeah. just have to continue to bear witness, but but also call them out when they're wrong. Yeah. And know that we don't have to have a majority of people, you know, that are, are believing that it can happen. That we just need enough. I mean, look, it was only 3% uh, that God used to win this revolutionary war against the greatest Navy and army in the world, the England. And, uh, and that was about 90,000 people out of 3 million. So if we have, we use that same model today, there's about 320 million people in America, 3% that love God and love family and love freedom, that would be 9.6 million people. Do you think there's 9.6 million Americans that are willing to get on that wall mm -hmm. and say, God, here am I, send me, what can I do to you know, fight for our rising generations in this nation? I think we've got it. So we need to be optimistic. We need to have this kind of tone. Thank goodness uh, Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and John Adams were. And Thomas Paine, yes. And Thomas Paine was one of those strident voices in this debate. He was from England and he came over to America and he was a political activist and writer. And he wrote that famous 47 page pamphlet called Common Sense. And there he assured Americans that, yes, hey, we are ripe for independence here in America. And he said, there are mostly people that are in industrious and frugal and honest in this country. And this pamphlet was read to inspire the depressed troops as they sat around, you know, the fire pits in the cold winter at the, at when, before they crossed the Delaware on Christmas Eve of what, 1777. And, and it, ins, it ins, inspired, you know, the early colonists. 
And he said, the people of America are people of prosperity. Almost every man is a freeholder. They had a vested interest in making this country work and being good and making it prosperous because they were living under these principles of liberty and freedom. Okay, Al. All right. Okay, a tide of reform. So as Jeline talked about, they were very concerned about their public virtue. But during the, so when you think about kingly government, when you think about centralized control, people don't really get involved in government. They don't get involved in their local government. And they're watching the federal government from a distance, but they really don't roll up their sleeves and get involved because why should they? Because people are making decisions several hundred thousand miles, hundreds and thousands of miles away from them. But when you think about the aristocracy that's associated with England, it, it bred the class warfare, the haves and the have-nots, and a little hoity-toitiness among the people because they were English subjects. But as they became gradually a spirit of sacrifice and reform became manifest in all the 13 colonies. And they started getting involved in wanting to govern themselves and public virtue became an issue. So you saw the tide of reform in the 1770s starting to change and really carry the people. So many, many Americans became so impressed with the improvement in the quality of life as a result of the reform movement that they were afraid they might lose it if they did not hurriedly separate from the corrupting influence of England. They had to get away from England and they had a capacity for virtue and morality, which would guarantee the success of a free self-governing society. So they had to get away from England. This is a quote by James Madison. Is there no virtue among us? If there be not, we are in a wretched situation. No theoretical checks, no form of government can render us secure. To suppose that any form of government will secure liberty or happiness without any virtue in the people is a chimerical idea. When's the last time you used chimerical in a sentence? Is it chimerical or chimerical? Chimerical. I, I don't know. <laughs> don't you love the words they used? Well, they actually, they, they were educated. If there be sufficient virtue and intelligence in the community, it will be exercised in the selection of those men so that we do not depend upon their virtue. That's why it's so important, and we're going to discuss this next week, to elect virtuous people or, or put confidence in our leaders, but in the people who are to choose them. The people have to be virtuous and moral, and when they are, they will choose virtuous and moral leaders. Northwest Ordinance of 1787, the founders believed in virtue and morality so much that they want it taught in the schools. They wanted religion, morality, and knowledge taught in the school. 1787, the Congress passed at that time the Northwest Ordinance. You're looking at the Ohio region. Eventually, they were going to come into the Union, but they had to come in on equal standing, and we wanted religion, morality, and knowledge taught in those schools, and no slavery in the new territories. If we can keep slavery confined to the South, it will eventually die out. The religion of America when I put these up here, think about all the religions that we have in America that are focused on God. And we all have these things in, in common. There is this a creator who made all things and mankind should recognize and worship him. This is the religion of America. That the creator has revealed a moral code of behavior for happy living, which distinguishes right from wrong. That the creator holds mankind responsible for the way they treat each other. That all mankind live beyond this life. And that in the next life, mankind are judged 
for their conduct in this one. Islam, Jewish, Christian, Protestant, I would say that all of those religions have these things in common, and that's what the founders wanted to be taught. It wasn't one religion that they wanted, but these sound principles they wanted and taught. Benjamin in the Franklin came up with these tenets. That right? is correct. He called anyone that subscribes to these tenets as a sound religion. A sound religion. That's exactly right. Okay, Julaine, last slide. Okay, there was a warning from the founders. Samuel Adams, there in the red, who was sometimes known as the father of the American Revolution, he wrote to another founding father and he said, I thank God that I have lived to see my country independent and free. She may long enjoy her independence and freedom. If she will, it depends on her virtue. And then his cousin, John Adams, would say, he pointed out that they knew why the future of the United States depended upon the level of virtue and morality maintained among the people. He said, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Isn't that interesting? They were prophetic again. So what is the key then, and I'll you know, foreshadow this, to preserving a virtuous nation? How, how does its people stay morally strong and virtuous? And that is principle three and four that we'll talk about next week. We have to elect virtuous leaders. And, and also number four, our founders understood that without religion, this government of free people could not be maintained. So, you know, I really love all these 28 principles, but I see such profound wisdom in principle one and two. And I go back to and here's the foundation for the other 26. They principles. are these two pr principles are foundational when you're trying to defend our country and these uh, principles of liberty and freedom that our founders gave us. The solutions to what is ailing us today can be found in principle one and two. And when you understand that our founders knew that and you read the quotes and you quote from them, you know, hide behind our founding fathers who understood it, that, that you know, when we measure our laws and the way we treat each other based on God's law, not popular opinion, not programs or handouts or legislation. The problem with society today is we have got to get God back into the game. I mean, we always tell our kids, we have the best player on the team. If he's on the bench, which he seems to be in a lot of schools and universities and you know uh, organizations, we got to get the best player off the bench and in the game. And we can have full confidence that, that when you have the best player on your side, you're going to do well. You're going to begin to win. But we benched the best player in this country and we filled it with godless ideas and cur curriculums and legislations. And so naturally, when you get the supreme being of the universe and you begin to follow his order of right conduct, you begin to prosper and do well. And that's what our country did the first hundred years uh, under our constitution that was based on natural law. Even though we had 6% of the world's population, we were producing over 50% of the world's wealth 
we were a light on the hill. People were modeling, other nations were modeling their constitutions after our constitutions. When America does well, all ships rise universally throughout the world. And we saw that. And so, you know, I think because of this, no matter how bad things look or get, we can continue to understand who we are connected to. We can continue to, to foster love and virtue and moral stability in our lives through service and through hopeful, optimistic voices and, and uh, through our hard efforts to roll up our sleeves and to work and to forgive if you know we've been done wrong, to strive for peace. In our family this year, we've been studying the New Testament, and we just studied a verse the other night in Second Thessalonians about peace, the Lord of peace, and we've been keeping track of all the different names of God in scripture, and peace is one of the names for him, and he says, the Lord of peace will give you peace always as he is with you, and, you know, I think we might not have world peace. I mean, just, you know, watching the news now with what's going on in the Middle East, it's, it's, horrifying it's it's terrifying it's it's upsetting and we we certainly don't have peace here in the country as well but we can have an internal peace as we continue to look to the supreme being of the universe godly law we and as we strive to you know strive to live lives of virtue and and morality we can feel that internal rooting and strength and peace from within and have the courage to you know get on that wall and do what it takes to know and understand natural law and then to do natural law and then to speak about natural law and to defend you know the rootings and the foundation upon which this nation was founded on natural law so that is the end of our class this evening 856 <laughs> So um, we're going to turn it over. So next week, your homework is, remember, the key, if you have the student manual, the keys to the fill in the blanks are all in the back. You actually retain more and learn more if you have a multi-sensory experience of listening and writing. And if you write in cursive, you retain better too. The flow of cursive actually helps you to retain information better. So um study i would really recommend you go back and read principle one and two again to kind of cement if you will go back and review after you've learned something for 48 hours your retention of that material goes up and then to prepare for class next week read um the reading really is not not too bit not too much uh, we just take about two to three principles a week so next week will be principle three and four which tells us how we maintain our virtue and and the importance of religion Thank you.